Okay, welcome to the Skeven Geology Podcast. I'm, I think maybe this is episode five, I believe. And uh, just dropped episode four, which I had been working on for quite some time. And that had to do with the history of the Scopes trial and uh, the Leopold and Loeb trial. And I really enjoyed making that one. Um, another article that I posted to our blog on our Scaven Geology website today has to do with Rennick's Fort, which was a, a one of the chain of frontier forts in the Revolutionary War era here in the Greenbrier Valley. And that's the same type of fort that Burnside's fort was. And I'm trying out my mobile command center here again trying to utilize the, the time that I'm driving, which I, I just had court in a criminal case, which is bizarre this late in the day, but I did, and just got to uh, resolve a, a case, and it actually a Second Amendment rights case, which, which was good and pretty much resolved in our favor. Um, but in any event, check out the post that I put on our blog at scavengeology.com. I believe it's slash blog, really on Rennick's Fort, and this is a fort, and this is kind of what scavenge geology is all about, is taking historical documents, narratives, pension statements, whatever, and looking for clues in there about real sites that you can find. And Rennick's Fort is mentioned in several pension applications, you know, Rev War era pension applications. And these are, you know, Rev War era soldiers who in their old age are, excuse me, if they're unable to care for themselves or have an income because of their service to the country, they're eligible to get a pension from the government. And a lot of these start really coming in around the 1830s or so. Um, but there are several of them that mention Rennick's Fort and serving as, you know, as Virginia militia garrisoned in that fort. And just like there are multiple pension statements that mention Burnside's Fort, our fort. And Burnside's Fort that w- we are currently in the process of, of restoring was the same sort of fort that Rennick's Fort was. So it's just basically a privately built and privately owned property. And they're building a log blockhouse of some sort, which is essentially just a big log house. And there's a couple ways of building one, but the idea is to make it fortified. And that really on the frontier just means bulletproof because there were no cannons being dragged out here to the Greenbrier Valley during the Rev War era because there were no roads. So if if you couldn't bring it in on a pack horse, you couldn't bring it at all. So Rennick's Fort, Burnside's Fort, uh, Thompson's Fort, Wood's Fort, I mean, there was just piles of them. There were piles of them. And unfortunately, there's almost none of them left today. And none of them really other than, than Burnside's Fort that I'm aware of. And in fact, Rennick's Fort, not only is there nothing left of it today, but we don't, we're not even exactly sure where it was. We haven't even found where 
literally on the ground it was. And there are ways of doing that. But last summer, I went out and kind of scouted out the area while looking for while looking at some of these pension documents and I and I note in the article if you read it and I have pictures of all these places um, of you know where the descriptions were and so a lot of these descriptions just said that Rennick's Fort was located at the forks of Spring Creek now Spring Creek is still called Spring Creek today if you are in Lewisburg West Virginia the county seat of Greenbrier County where I have one of my two law offices. If you just follow Route 219 north out of Lewisburg, um, which just goes north and south, and it heads, you know, it's like you're going to Snowshoe Ski Resort. If you've ever been to Snowshoe, you've probably driven this stretch of road. You drive up 219, and in about, oh, 15 minutes or, or maybe 10 minutes, you come to, well, probably 15 minutes you cross Spring Creek, and Spring Creek flows into the Greenbrier River, and you'll actually see Spring Creek as you are driving on Route 219. And it, and it kind of is in a gorge by the time it gets close to the river. But you come to the little town of what's called Rennick, and that's R-E-N-I-C-K, Rennick, West Virginia. So when I first read about Rennick's Ford, I said, well, I know where Rennick is, so clearly that's probably where it was. But Rennick is right there along the Greenbrier River, and you drive right next to Rennick on Route 219. But in fact, as it turns out, that's not where Rennick's Fort was described as being. The description that's in the records is not where Rennick is today. It's actually, what, five, four or five miles away back into the mountains from there, up Spring Creek, five or six miles from its mouth, according to the descriptions. And it's described as being at the forks of that creek. Well, if you if you look at a map or you look at Google Earth and you follow it up to its fork, that's a little dot on the map, basically, in the mountains. Just a little clearing in the mountains. And I believe it has a name for some reason. It's, it's Etsy, I, I, or Esty, or Etsy. There's nothing there. There's not even any houses there. It's just a, an, an intersection, and there's a bridge there where several roads come together right at these forks. And really, it's the only clearing in this grouping of mountains. But another one of the descriptions says that that Rennick's Fort was about 10 miles from Donnelly's Fort. And I know exactly where Donnelly's Fort is. That's something that's known. It's been excavated archaeologically, and it's been it's it's something that was never lost through the years, even though there's nothing left of it other than some rocks on the ground and, the, and some soil stains. Um, we know where Donnelly's Ford is, and I specifically know where it is. So I looked on Google Earth, and it allows you to measure the ground distance from one point to another point. So I took the exact point of where I know that Donnelly's Fort was, and I measured to where I, I believe that Rennick's Fort was, and right at the fork of this creek. And sure enough, it's almost spot on, almost exactly 10 miles. I think it's 10.17 miles. So really, the 18th century recollections were within one-tenth of a mile accurate. I mean, really, really accurate. So that's pretty crazy, but that, that means that it has to really has to be the spot. 
you know, there might be a, technically another fork in that Spring Creek somewhere, but it wouldn't be exactly 10 miles from there to Donnelly's Fort. And then another description says it was five to six miles from the mouth of Spring Creek. And so that also is consistent with where this spot is. And it's really nowhere near Rennick, West Virginia. And the reason for that is because William Rennick, who Rennick is named after and who Rennick's Fort was named after, and I believe he probably built Rennick's Fort, he started off at this other spot. He's not where he eventually ended up next to the river. He, he originally was in this isolated little clearing in the mountains that was on the road, on the trail anyways, between a chain of several forts. So the, there were some other forts that were nearby. And if you keep following the road that's still there today, up through the, through the mountains from the spot, you come to the site where McCoy's fort was. And then if you keep going, and yeah, you have to make a left, you'll come to where Donnelly's Fort was. And that's about, you know, well, it's going to be probably a little more than 10 miles as it runs today, because it, it just between point A and B, following the contour of the land, was 10.17. And then there's another nice creek, very you know, not really far away, named Culbertson's Creek. And Really, it's such a beautiful creek that I took a picture of it and some video just while I was driving by, and I didn't realize that that was Culbertson Creek, but there was another fort on Culbertson's Creek, and that was called, I think it's called McClanahan's Fort, and that was a fort built by McClanahan. So these frontier forts were built out of necessity by these settlers to, to protect uh to protect each other, you know, to protect their family and their neighbors from Indian attacks. And then by law, they were ordered by the state of Virginia to garrison their, uh, or, or at least to organize their, their local militias and to garrison them, garrison them at these forts. And the state or the government would provide um, ammunition and other supplies, in, or the county would anyways, for these, for these uh, militia garrisons. So it's mentioned that there were, you know, basically every summer. You know, summer was a growing season, but it was also warfare season. So that is the time when the Indian war parties, you know, and we're talking about Shawnee, when the Shawnee war parties would leave their villages on the Ohio or in the Ohio country and would come into the Virginia frontier and raid these settlements. I mean, kind of like Vikings, you know, you're, you're, you're doing your thing in the winter. And then when the weather clears up, it's raiding season. You know, it was much the same way with the Shawnee and they were very much a warlike people. They were very much feared and they were, they were very much proud of their, ability to to uh to fight and not just the the white settlers but you know they had fought with other native american tribes so it was a dangerous time and the way to survive was to build fortified homes and the bigger ones you'd put a stockade around it and make it a fort and you'd garrison it with militia now at that time all men 
were in the militia. You didn't have a choice. You couldn't just choose not to participate in the militia. By law, all men of fighting age, basically, were required by law to join the militia and to also bring their own arms. And that's why the Second Amendment mentioned militias, really, because it wasn't a time where really there was a standing army of any sort. And there was a standing army prior to the Second Amendment uh, being being written and ratified. I mean, we had a Continental Army uh, at the direction of the Continental Congress, and they controlled Congress controlled the the our national army, but there were still these militias in every county in all of these colonies, especially Virginia, and the militia law required that you had as the citizen to join and drill with the militia, but you had to have your own weapons, your own uh, long arm, you know, musket or a rifle or a hybrid combination of the two, and you had to provide your own ammunition, you know, your own lead, your own, your own powder. And the law was very specific about how much you needed to have, enough for however many shots. So you were required to have this stuff by law. And if you didn't have it because you couldn't afford it, and you know these things were expensive, there was a public armory where you could make application, kind of like applying for food stamps today. Whereas we didn't have food stamps, but we had basically gun stamps and lead stamps and powder stamps where you could apply for use of the public arms and ammunition. And these would be lent out to you and you'd have to return them when the time came. And a lot of people don't realize this. And that's kind of why the Second Amendment was written how it was, is because it was at that time and in the, in the near future everybody had arms because you were required to because the militia was the people it was not a government entity it was a body made up of the people and the people themselves would vote you know who is the officer and 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 uh, who's going to be responsible for this or for that and they would militias would would take part in road building and other civic duties so it was very much part of life but in in any event you you take the the militia unit from the surrounding countryside, all these settlers, and their base basically would be the the local fort. And it's a private residence. It's not owned by the government. And uh, they would be housed. They would basically live there during the summer months of these, especially during the Revolutionary War, during these dangerous uh, years where there was a lot of fighting and a lot of raids. They would live in the fort during the summer months. And especially as the growing season progressed, they had to go out and tend to their crops. And I wrote in this article on Rennick's Fort, even one of the pension applications, the narrative mentions what they were growing. He says, uh, corn, potatoes, etc. Now, I wish he would have expounded on what etc. was. I mean, probably they were growing hemp for sure. We know that. But potatoes and, and of course, corn. So in order to go out and work these fields they had to and or they learned to anyways to bring their friends with guns to bring an armed guard with them so somebody some of the guys would work the land or ladies they'd work the land 
and others would stand guard with weapons. And that protected them from, you know, surprise attacks. If you look at a lot of especially uh, new settlers uh, into the frontier area areas, and especially Kentucky, um, if they weren't experienced in what they were doing, a lot of these people were killed while, while uh, doing chores around the, the farm or while farming because they weren't anticipating this. Well, these people knew what they were doing. They had armed uh, groups um, escorting everybody who was farming, and that's what they did. That's how they, they survived during those summer months. And these guys mentioned in their pension uh, applications, you know, how they were doing this. And then they would divide into two. And half of the militia unit would stay in the garrison and they'd wait for an attack if need be and probably form these armed guards at times. And then the other half, probably the more experienced ones and the, the ones uh, more of the Indian fighter types, would become what's called Indian spies. And that's basically a Virginia militia ranger. You know, they would range in between um, one fort and the other, or several forts, multiple forts, and look at some of the uh, well-used passes and, and the likely trails that would be used by war parties, and they'd look for sign, any sign of Indians. And those were known as Indian spies. And most of these pension statements were applications where they're seeking payment for their service. Uh, and they're calling themselves Indian spies. And that's basically just an early phrase for ranger. And that's what they're doing. And we know from some of these statements, they, they have some great details that they were drawing out rations for eight days of being out on the trail. And we know um, that they were going, you know, nine, 10 miles in between places. And they were only setting up cold camps. So in other words, they were not lighting any fires. They were, they were, they were, they had either pre-prepared food or jerky um, where they could not cook food. They could not make fires because any war party that's roving through the area, they'd of course see a fire. They'd smell a fire. So that would just get you killed. So it, it was, I believe it was a, a tough job, but that was, you know, if you read the article that, that, that I wrote and uh, you'll see that you know, part of the search for Rennick's Fort is that you discover a lot of the details of life for these Indian spies. And it really, it's just a fascinating story. So check it out on our blog, scavengeology.com, and click the blog button, and you'll see, you know, all the blog posts that we've done, uh, including a lot of them on pension statements, uh, pension narratives. I've transcribed some of them. I've posted actual pictures of some of them. Really, there's some great history there, and it's always good to look at the firsthand accounts. Um, anyways, uh, thanks for listening, and uh, I'll see you next time.